0: John Ortberg, in his book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, shares how our fallenness makes us want to be a part of not just any group, but an exclusive group. Now, by definition, every society includes people who connect, who belong to one another. Yet every every society includes people also who feel left out, uh, people who don't get chosen, at recess, Uh, people whose invitations to dance get turned down, people who are blackballed, cold-shouldered, voted off the island. We exclude others for a variety of reasons. Some of those reasons are pride, uh, fear, ignorance, or even the desire to feel superior. So Ortberg goes on to say this, I thought of this tendency to divide people the last time I was aboard an airplane. The first-class passengers were served gourmet food on china and crystal by their very own flight attendants, while those of us in coach ate snacks served in paper bags with plastic wrappers. The first-class passengers, they had room to stretch and sleep, and while those of us in coach, we were sitting in proximity, usually reserved for engaged couples in the back row of a movie. Now, the first class passengers, they also had flight attendants bringing them moist towelettes for comfort and personal hygienes. While those of us in coach had to sit and stew in our facial sweat on almost every flight once the plane is underway. A curtain gets drawn to separate the two compartments. It's not to be violated. It is is like the Berlin Wall or the veil that separated the Court of the Gentiles from the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem. The The curtain is a reminder throughout the flight that some people are first class and some are not. Those who are not first class are not to violate that boundary They can't even see what's going on behind the other side of the curtain. And he goes on to say this. On a recent flight, a voice came on the intercom system telling us that because of new security measures, the attendants were not allowed to fasten the curtain. But the airline wanted all of us in the court of Gentiles to know that we were not allowed to use the facilities in the holy of holies of the airplane. Even though there was one restroom for eight people up in first class, there were two restrooms for several hundred of us, mostly children under the age of six who had been drinking Red Bull on the flight, back in coach. So let the curtain stand on that, let the curtain on that plane stand for a tendency deep inside fallen humanity. It's the tendency to exclude. You see, in the act of exclusion, we divide the world up into us and them. We divide the world up into us and them. That's what I love about Scripture. Scripture is filled with good news, but it is not afraid to show the warts of God's people. And we often forget that the apostles they had warts. They were struggling saints like the rest of us. Even after seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead, knowing they were to take the good news to the ends of the earth, the apostles actually struggled to get past their exclusiveness of us versus them. The apostles still divided up the world between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Let me explain. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 8, Jesus instructed the apostles to not yet leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Then in verse eight, it says, for you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, here's the question that I'm wrestling with as we come to our text in Acts chapter 10. Why? Why are the apostles still in Jerusalem in the 10th chapter of Acts? Now, we saw last week uh, how in Acts 8, Philip left Jerusalem, but the 12 apostles, they're still there. Jesus commanded the apostles to go, so why are they standing in Jerusalem so long? Why are they staying there among their own people, the Jews? Hmm. After the day of Pentecost, in Acts 8, Luke adds an interesting note to the story of Stephen being stoned to death. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Then notice this next statement, Except for the apostles. Do you see it? All the other disciples, they left Jerusalem and they they went. But the apostles stay in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Well, as we know, Philip, he left Jerusalem to preach to the Samaritans, and they responded to the gospel in an amazing way. Uh, To a Jew, that would have been shocking. You see, when word reaches the apostles back in Jerusalem about the revival in Samaria, The apostles send Peter and John to investigate to see if it is true. They doubt it. And sure enough, the Samaritans are entering the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Besides the Samaritans coming to Jesus, so does an Ethiopian eunuch, And what God is saying, what he's trying to show the early church as the Holy Spirit leads his disciples further out is this. He's showing that the gospel is not only for the Jews, but that the gospel is for all people, for all nations. The only problem is the Holy Spirit must still convince the apostles that the gospel is for all people. Well, Guess where the Holy Spirit leads Peter to learn this important truth about the gospel? We're in Acts chapter 10. That gives you a clue. The Holy Spirit leads him to a man who is in the category of them. Outside the Jews, the Holy Spirit leads him to a Roman centurion named Cornelius. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 2 of Acts 10. And in that verse, it explains how Cornelius was a devout Gentile who was charitable to the Jews. He was a man of disciplined prayer. And in response to his prayer, an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius in a vision and instructs him to send for a man named Simon Peter. Now, Cornelius was to invite Peter to his house to hear a message from Cornelius. So Peter's going to get a message from a Gentile. Well, the next day, while Cornelius's servants were en route to Peter's house, Peter prays and falls into a dream state. Acts ten nine and ten. And in his dream, he has a vision of heaven opening and a sheet coming down out of the sky, and it was filled. The text says, with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Verse twelve. I heard the story recently that at the beginning of a children's Sunday school class, the teacher reviewed the previous week's lesson, which happened to be this story of Peter in Acts chapter 10, the vision of the sheet filled with animals. And the teacher asked the class, what did Peter see when he went up on the housetop to pray? And one little boy waved his hand back and forth and he yelled out, pigs in a blanket. I love that. That's a fun little story. We don't know exactly what Peter saw, but I don't think that little kid was too far off. Because what we do know from Peter's reaction is that the content of the sheet were not worthy of a Jew's stamp of approval. And this is why Peter declines the offer. In fact, when we read the text, there's a voice that commands for Peter to get up, kill, and eat, Acts 10.13. And Peter's response is this, by no means, never, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy. I've never eaten anything unclean. You see, Peter cannot imagine eating an unclean animal that would make him an unclean Jew. From the time that they were little, Jews were taught never to eat from the Gentile buffet. But he is now commanded by God to do so. Now, after two more experiences that encourage him to do the same thing, Peter is described in verse 17 this way, as greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision might mean. Well, to clear up Peter's confusion, guess who's going to show up to help him? You got it. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is going to bring Peter to God's providential moment to deepen Peter's understanding on how God works. Well, Peter awakens from his dream. And at that moment, Cornelius' servants show up. And they explain to Peter their mission. And the next day, they take him to Cornelius' house. Peter responds by saying this, you Gentiles yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, to associate, associate or to visit him. Uh, Peter's basically saying this, you Gentiles, you know there's a barrier that keeps us divided. There's a barrier that is supposed to keep us separate. Well, Acts 10 verse 28 goes on to say this, And yet, God has shown me that I should no longer call any man unholy or unclean. Now, now we understand why the apostles were stuck in Jerusalem. As Jews, they were always warned about how how unlawful it was for Jews to break religious protocol by associating with Gentiles. But now, after Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit is writing a new law upon Peter's heart. In verse 35, Peter confesses this, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's good. Uh, Tim Keller on Easter Sunday said this, On Easter, I always say to my skeptical, skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, They should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor and alleviating hunger and disease and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. And they find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Think about it. Why? Why sacrifice for the needs of others if, in the end, nothing we do will make any difference? However, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope. There's reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. Hmm. Uh, N.T. Wright has written this. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But. If Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and we will plan with all the energy of God to implement victory of Jesus over all the problems. This is the realization that Peter has. Easter is for the whole world. And yet, this new reality created an inner conflict that Peter was finding difficult to resolve. So, the Holy Spirit helps him out. Peter opens his mouth. And he begins to speak about Jesus. And as he is preaching, Acts 10, 44 to 48, here's what he says. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, verse 45 is a significant moment, so pay attention to it. And the believers from among the circumcised, this is the Jews, the Jewish Christians, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exult, extolling God then Peter declared can anyone withhold the water water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have verse 48 and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Will Williman has said, throughout the book of Acts, the people whom the Holy Spirit shocks are the ones already in church. That is so true, isn't it? In fact, Williman goes on to say this, At every step in the Acts program of evangelism and church growth, now catch this, it is the church that must be dragged, kicking and screaming into new areas of baptismal fidelity. Evangelism is a matter of a church in good enough condition to keep up with the frenetic movements of the Spirit without passing out. Oh, that's good. In fact, it's so good, I want you to hear it again. Evangelism is a matter of a church in good enough condition to keep up with the frenetic movements of the Spirit without passing out. Looking at the various conversations through Acts chapter 8 through 10, the various conversions, I mean, the Samaritans and Ethiopian, the Roman soldiers, Cornelius and his household, it forces the church to ask an important question. If God himself does not show partiality in reaching out to others, where may we mistakenly show partiality? Hmm. During a Saturday afternoon, a few churches in an area got together for community service day. Uh, One of the volunteers was walking down a narrow side street in the city of Compton, California, and he was heading towards uh, one of the work sites. It was towards the end of the workday, and there were dozens of people in yellow t-shirts. These were the church volunteers, maybe uh, 50 of them in all. And they were streaming out of the site, getting ready to head off to lunch after finishing up a complete makeover of a local house. Well, this particular volunteer was six or eight houses away when he passed a married couple working in their own yard. He paused to compliment the woman on her roses. And she asked the volunteer what he was doing down the street. Well, the man, the man replied that he had, that he represented a band of churches united in their desire to serve the city. And then he continued chatting about the radical neighborhood Transformation that she had witnessed by the simple kindness of the volunteers. It was in this conversation with this woman that her husband had been weed eating the other side of the front yard. But when he saw the volunteer's yellow volunteer shirt, he turned off his weed eater, set it down, and he started walking straight towards the man and his wife. After looking into the volunteer's eyes, He nodded approvingly towards the renovated house down the street. And then he said, I love your heart. Where can I get a heart like yours? Well, flabbergasted, the volunteer simply said, "Uh, we got our hearts from Jesus and he would be glad to give you one like his too. Before the volunteer headed off to lunch, they had a great conversation about the unparalleled gospel of Jesus Christ and his power to change hearts, his power to change homes, neighborhoods, and cities. Now, church, I've done multiple prayer walks around the Blenville neighborhood. And what I've noticed is Blenville Christian Church, it doesn't quite look like the people of Blenville North and South. In fact, in talking to our neighbors, they're different than many of us at Blenville Christian Church. In some of the people I've talked with, some of our neighbors are wrestling with addiction to alcohol and drugs. Others are wrestling with post-traumatic stress disorder. Some I met are in wheelchairs and others have shades of melanin darker than ours. So my walk around Blendville had me wondering, is Blendville in good enough condition to keep up with the Holy Spirit, with what the Holy Spirit would like to change in us, so we can reach this neighborhood for Jesus? Hmm. You see, God had to change something in Peter, so the gospel could go, go forward to reach all nations. So what? What may the Holy Spirit need to change in you so Blenville can reach people different from us with the gospel of Jesus? Church, my challenge to you this week is to pray about that and see what Jesus has to tell you.